As I was thinking about the text today, um, I thought about why we are here. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is it that we are here? I want you to think about that while we read the text together, and then we'll dive in. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 today. Let's read them together, and then we'll pray and dive in. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Let's bow together. Lord, I must confess that just like the Apostle Paul confesses here, Lord, I am not worthy to be anywhere near your word, Lord, on my own accord. But you make us worthy, you made me worthy, Lord, through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray today as we dive into this chapter, as we begin, look at this wonderful message from Paul to the Corinthian church, Lord, that you would, through your Spirit, empower me to speak the truth of your word, and that you would empower all the people here to hear what it is that you've prepared for them today. May your will be done from here, Lord. Amen. Well, the question, the question remains, why is it that we're here this morning? Why is it that we're drawn to this place every Sunday what is it that draws us here, if you had to be honest with yourself? Undoubtedly, some of you are part of an organization of some sort. Maybe uh, you are part of a golf course. What do people do when they're part of a golf course clubhouse? They go there to play golf, right? I know that some of you have gym memberships, and... Uh, I'm sure that you go to the gym just to look in the mirror and uh, flex your muscles and just kind of look good, look at others, they look at you, you're like, okay, I'm good, I'm going to go home. 
Maybe some of you are part of a charitable organization, a mission. That mission is to help people in need. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's uh, adults that don't have... Uh, maybe they're disabled or uh, kids who don't have parents. Or maybe you are a part of PETA, which stands for People Eating Tasty Animals. <laughs> Whatever organization you are a part of, you know why you're there. So as I asked myself, preparing for this chapter, I said, what is it that we are here for every single Sunday? What unifies us as the church? Why do we keep getting up at 6 a.m., 7, some 8.45, and rushing here to church, and we keep dressing up, you know, we've got to get my Sunday best out. What is it that draws us here? Well, as Apostle Paul is preaching, and he's writing, I'm sorry, to the, to the Corinthian church, he's just got done talking to them, and, and just he kind of laid into them at the beginning of the, of the book, didn't he? He's been calling them out pretty harshly at some spots. He's like, you guys are fighting and quarreling. You guys get together for unknown reasons. A lot of you don't even know why you're here. Some of you are here because of Cephas. Some of you are here because of Paul. Some claim the Lord. Your uh, Lord's Supper is a mess. You exercise spiritual gifts for your own indulgences. You're doing it all wrong. And he's correcting. He's correcting a lot of those things that are happening in the church. And I believe it is so relevant also to us today as a church. We need to hear the words that Apostle Paul is saying to the church. And he is calling them to obedience. He's calling them through proper worship. And I believe that when he gets to chapter 15, he is reminding the church in Corinth that they are there for a specific reason. They're there because of a certain thing that unifies the church, and that church is unified by the gospel. Let's read the first three, I'm sorry, first two verses again. He's saying, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So basically what Apostle Paul is doing is he's stating to them that you are here because of the gospel. And as we're going to look at this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter today, we're going to discover that there are certain things that he's pointing out. And the first thing he's pointing out to them is that Gospel is to be shared, the sharing of the gospel. I'm known as a slideless preacher, so there will be nothing up there today. So if you guys want to take notes, that's going to be our first point, is the sharing of the gospel. So the gospel is the good news, right? That is, it is the good news, but in order for there to be good news, 
there must have been some bad news first. And the bad news we find, one of the verses, one of the many, but one of the well-known verses in the gospel that we find for the bad news is Romans 3.23. Say it with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all know it by heart. Every single one of us knows that. And that's great. That is awesome that we know that truth because we are here to hear the gospel that frees us from that death that results as, as a result of the falling short of the glory of God. So, what do we do with this gospel? Apostle Paul points out four different points. He says, first and foremost, that the gospel is to be preached. Gospel is also to be received. Then we must stand in the gospel and that the gospel of Christ is the one that saves us from our sins. If we look at Romans 10 in chapter, Romans 10 verse 13, it speaks a little bit about how the gospel is to be preached. It is to be shared. It says, Romans chapter 10 verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So we find out that the gospel if it is to be heard, it is to be first and foremost preached. Well, who's tasked with sharing the gospel? Who is tasked with sharing the gospel? I believe that first and foremost, the people who are tasked with sharing the gospel are the parents. The Christian parents are tasked to be sharing the gospel with their children. As I thought through this whole process, I, th I thought, I remembered when we had little babies, and I would go to work, and my wife would be home. She, st she stayed home with them, and she would be holding these little bundles of joy, and she is always caring for them. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of a mom caring for a little baby, and a Christian mom who is always praying for the child as she's feeding it, as she's taking care of it. She's singing to this little baby. As the toddlers start to walk and they wobble around like penguins, what a great time to read that children's Bible with them. What a great time as a father after work to get together with the kids when they're young. I remember to this day, we have this blue Bible. I think all the Ukrainians here are going to remember that Bible. The picture of Jesus Christ, um, it was right on the front. It's a little blue kid's Bible. And it's, it's a Sermon on the Mount right there. And my dad, he would pick me up as a kid, and he would sit me on his knee, and we would read it together. And those stories are still ingrained in my mind today. So what a responsibility, what a great responsibility God gave parents to share the gospel. Grandparents, you're not out either. You don't get a pass. You're not just there to buy candy for the kids, okay? You're not just there to spoil them. 
I want to encourage you today, if you're a parent, a mom and dad, a young one, or maybe your kids are teenagers, don't be afraid to share the gospel with your children. If you're a grandparent today, don't miss out on the chance to share from the Word of God with your grandkids. It's going to be one of the best things that you will ever do for them. Sharing of the gospel in the Christian homes, it's not just the responsibility of the youth pastor. The youth pastors would be awesomely blessed by you guys sharing the gospel first, and then they can come alongside and help the parents to share that word and to help you as a young person to bring you up in the truth. If we look in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, Deuteronomy is all the way in the front, the fifth book in. It says this, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I'm commanding to you shall be on your heart, and you shall repeat them diligently, this is the point here, to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. When are we supposed to share the gospel with our children? All the time. All the time. There's a reason for that. Let me just share this. This was kind of scary, kind of amusing. Um, recent survey from Gospel Coalition. They surveyed a bunch of evangelical Christians. So it says, let me just read it for the sake of me screwing it up. Survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University finds that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. A plurality of adults, about 48%, believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. Only 35% disagree. Majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christians also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance, even those associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus as Savior. While about 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians, only about half, 54%, believe they will experience heaven after they die. And then the scary one, I think. Based on age groups, just 20% of people ages 18 to 29 believe that when they die they will go into heaven only because they have confessed their sins and have accepted Jesus as their Savior. Pretty scary. Pretty scary what our kids are thinking about and what they believe to be truth today. So I would encourage you, all of you, moms, dads, grandparents today, just like Deuteronomy 6 is calling us out, on every step, every step of the way, let's share the good news, the truth of the gospel with our children. This is what Apostle Paul is calling here. Also, who are tasked, those who are tasked to share the news. Well, they're the preachers and the teachers. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul, again, calls out Timothy, and he says to him, 2 Timothy 4, 
I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. So the preachers and the teachers of the church who are called by God to share the word, we bear the responsibility of bringing the gospel to the masses. The third group of people, I believe, who are tasked with sharing the gospel are each and every one of you guys here who claim Christ as their own. You don't get a pass. You don't. You also must share the gospel. Think of a friend, of a family member, of a co-worker. Wherever God placed you, there are so many people who need to hear the truth of God today. You are also, each and one of you, tasked with sharing the gospel. And then, I think the gospel is also preached by our life. And this is a hard one to say because I know that my life, a lot of times, does not reflect the gospel message. But the, the Lord calls us, and he's in, Matthew 5, in Matthew 5, 16, also a well-known verse, Matthew 5, 16. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we ought to preach the gospel by the way that we live. Second point of sharing the gospel is the gospel must be received. We see that in verse 2. It says that the gospel, I'm sorry, in verse 1, which you also received, right? So when every one of us hears the message of the gospel, we have a choice to make. We did at one point, all of us who believe, we made a choice, right? When the gospel is being preached, you can do a few things. It must, it's not going to do anything to you if, if you ignore it. If you just say, I'm too busy, I'm too young, it's for old people, it's fables, I don't need it, I'm a good person, make all sorts of excuses. If we make those excuses, then the gospel is not going to do anything for you. As you guys remember, in Matthew 22, the, the parable of the wedding feast. They were called. The king is making a big wedding feast for his son. He's calling them, calling the people. And what are the people doing? Well, some of them ignored. Some of them made a bunch of excuses. And some of them even became violent, and they killed the messengers. He was obviously speaking about the nation of Israel and what had happened with all the prophets who came before them. But people have a choice. The other day, I was at a, my favorite store. It's called Target. And uh, as I was walking out, I noticed a little sticker that I've never seen before. And I'm like, oh, wow, a Bible. But then I noticed the Bible was on fire. And it was crossed out. And it also said on the bottom, I'm not in your little book club. And it was on a minivan. And I was like, wow, what are these people teaching their children? People ignore, people hate the gospel so much that they're willing to put those kinds of stickers on their vehicles to proclaim that they stand against the gospel of Christ. But the gospel is the only thing that is able to change your life. Because in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says this, 
For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. So just like the Thessalonians, the Corinthian church also believed in the gospel. Well, what is the next thing we see here? It says we must walk in the gospel. I'm quickly running out of time, so I must hurry. You see, hearing and receiving the gospel, or it, it's not enough. It's not enough to hear it, to get excited about it. I'm not going to go there, but you guys all remember the parable of the sower, right? Everybody was hearing the gospel. Everybody was receiving the gospel. But what are the soils? There were four soils there, right? And some of the soils, they were just like birds came in, you know, picked up the seed. And then there was that shallow soil, and then it just, you know, grew quickly. But then the thistles of life and everything else, all the, you know, all my commitments and everything, and just, just, just drowned it out. Just drowned it out. And only there's one, one soil which was ready to receive and to produce the fruit to the glory of God. So standing in it means simply that when you hear the gospel, you receive the gospel, you start producing fruit. You start to bear fruit of the gospel. It is the idea of standing or walking, as Apostle Paul refers to many times over in Ephesians. In Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, when we're using our spiritual gifts, there's the idea of unity in Ephesians chapter 4. There is the idea of using your spiritual gifts for the mutual growth and of strengthening of one another in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And there's the idea of walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. That is what standing in the gospel means. It means that we are continually standing, walking in the gospel. Is it popular today? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The world is completely opposite. I think Pastor Brad last Sunday, he really made the point clear here. We're not to expect for the world to ever align with us on what we believe in here. The world is going to be doing their own thing. They're totally fine with where they're at. You know, we preach that God is all in all, that he is all the truth, the word of God is truth. Well, they say it's a fable. You are enough, is what the world says. We say, I'm a fallen sinner. We read Romans 3.23, and we say we have fallen short. They're like, nope, I'm good. We're totally fine. Principles of God, morality, the truth are all under attack today. Marriage, obviously, under attack today. God as creator is under attack today. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I call it out. You ask my kids, I say it every single time. When we watch the National Geographic and it starts every single time, six billion years ago. I'm like, no. <laughs> Why? Why must you lie? Can't somebody just be truthful and say right after that phrase, we have no idea what happened six billion years ago. No idea. But people buy it. People buy into it as the truth and they are standing in their own 
gospel, so to speak, but we are to stand in the truth. And then the fourth point of sharing in the gospel is we are saved by it. What exactly does God save us from, you may ask? Well, since we all have fallen short, God made a couple promises in his word, and he made promises to both parties, to those who reject and to those who believe. He made the promise to unbelievers. He promised them in Romans 1.17, and it is happening today, and we can witness it pretty clearly. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So everyone who observes the nature today can see the truth of God in it, but people deny and they would rather believe a lie than the truth of God. So the promise to the unbeliever is that God is going to reveal wrath on the unrighteous. What is the promise to the believer? Well, the promise to the believer is very, very great. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of will of man, but of God. So if you believe this message of the gospel, if you hear it, if you receive it, if you walk in it, the promise to you is, to promise to me is, that we are children of God. Brothers and sisters, it is an amazing truth. As I think of myself, and maybe some of you think of yourselves the same, I'm like, you know, I'm not a really good person. But the truth is that it is not because of my deeds, but it is because of the work of Christ on the cross that we become children of God. Now, the tricky phrase of verse 3, it says this, if you hold fast, right, but by, by which you also are saved, and then there's a little tricky thing there. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I have also noticed, as Pastor Brad Orda noticed last Sunday, that Pastor Brad likes to give away some tricky parts to be preached on. But, as I thought through the whole passage here, what I, I don't believe that we ought to stop here and just have this big, long discussion about, about whether or not you're going to, whether you're able to lose your salvation or, or anything like that here. I don't, I don't believe that's what Apostle Paul is saying here. And there's a place for that conversation if somebody has questions about their salvation and, and all of those other things. But, I believe what he's saying here is that he is calling us to understand the previous four points that he has made. He's simply saying that you and I need to watch our walk and realize what are we here? What am I here for? Am I here because I am drawn by the gospel or is it because I'm just here because my parents brought me here. 
or this is something that we did as a kid with my mom and dad, and I just, I think it's a great place. I think church is just full of good people, and I want to be a part of a group of people. I don't want to be a part of, you know, gangsters out there or something like that. Why am I here? And he is telling them, he says, look back. Look why you believed. Look at your walk and make an honest assessment of what it is that you're doing here in the church. He's calling them out and he's saying basically that some of you believed in vain. Now, are there unsaved people in the church? I sure hope not here. But yes, churches are filled with people who are really just fooling themselves and others. And he's calling out us individually, each and one of us. He's saying that you got to hold fast. What is holding fast? Holding fast is not being part of religious activity. It is not giving to the church. It is not charitable things. It is not your church attendance. Holding fast means to cherish, to guard, and to protect what you believed in. To hold fast means to wholly give your life. It signifies a whole life commitment, a long, lifelong commitment to the gospel and to the truth of the gospel. Firmly holding on to the principles of God and his word. That is what he's calling us here to do. He's calling us to hold fast to the truth that we believed. And he is saying in the next section how it is we are to do that. The next part, part I called, it's called the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is verse 3, for I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I believe that little phrase he repeats twice, according to the scripture, is the key to the end of verse 3. How are we to be sure that we didn't believe in vain? Well, just like these people here, when he's repeating to them what the gospel is, he's saying, all I'm saying can be found in the scriptures of old, according to the scriptures. Now, did they have the New Testament at that time? Did the Corinthian church have that? No, they did not. So where would they find the evidence for Christ and for the gospel? Well, they had to go back to the Old Testament, right? Christ died for our sins. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ died. That's truth of the gospel. He was buried. Why is it important that Christ was buried? Because there are many people out there today who are saying that, you know what, he experienced some kind of a um, shock because he was on the cross. And he was in shock, and they really just, you know, wrapped him up, and they put him away. And then, just like the Pharisees, they said what? He was stolen, and he was alive. He was never dead. Therefore, there was no resurrection. But why is it important? It is important that Christ died, because 
I just played my card. Because if there was no death, there is no what? There is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, when Apostle Paul continues in this whole chapter, as I looked at this chapter, it talks and it says the word raised, rise, or resurrection 22 times in 58 verses, I believe, right? 58. Yes, 58. 22 times he uses the term. Do you guys think it might be just a little bit important? And I'm pretty sure that the next few Sundays we're going to hear a lot about resurrection. But it was important that Christ died because without the death, there would be absolutely no resurrection. So there was the cave, there were rocks being put against that cave. There were guards, as we read in the scriptures. There were crying women, the laughing Pharisees, the running disciples. And then the third point of the essence of the gospel, the first one was Christ died for our sins. He was buried, right? You don't bury a person who is alive. You only bury a dead person. And he was raised. And praise him for being raised from the grave because, as Apostle Paul points out in verse 17, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, he says that if there was no resurrection, guess what? You and me being here would be the stupidest thing in the world. Absolutely useless. That is what he's saying. He's saying that if there is no resurrection, then we are of all men to be pitied. So think about how important that is, Christ being risen from the dead. That is the essence of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And if you, if you have a question about why it is important that we must go back into the scriptures to, to uh, read about this, then, then consider one, a few verses that I just looked up from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ, he even quoted some of them, there is evidence of Christ everywhere in the, all, over, all over the Old Testament. Zechariah 13, 7, he says, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Isaiah 53, 7, he says, He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before shearers. He never said a word. Psalm twenty two sixteen states, My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs, and evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Who do you think he is talking about there? Psalm 22, 14. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My strength has dried up like, baked, like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Psalm 69, 21. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments amongst themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Who is that all talking about? It is talking about Christ. The Old Testament is filled with evidence. That's why he's talking about and he's encouraging them that if you are to believe that Christ was died for our sins, was buried and was raised, it can be found in the Old Testament. Look it up. And the last point we're going to talk about is that the evidence for the gospel. What is the evidence for the gospel? Let's read verses 5. And it says, Apostle Paul gives evidence. He says, And he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So he's saying, hey, even if you don't believe what the Old Testament is saying, what the prophets were saying, what David was writing in the Psalms, how about you go talk to those people who are still alive today that saw Christ, all of these people, Peter and the Twelve and the 500 brothers and sisters, this actually says more than 500, and James, and then he says, and he also appeared to me as one untimely born. I love the humility of Paul there. He just, he really knows his place, and he really knows how much grace God has poured out to him. And guess what? God has poured out that same grace to every single person that is here today. God has poured it out to us. He gave us that same grace. Well, we can say one thing, right? Well, the Corinthians had the chance to go and talk to some of those people. You know, they would have to pack up their donkey and, you know, take a few dry loaves of bread and make a long little journey and they could go to Jerusalem. They could probably find a bunch of people who saw Christ, who saw him resurrected and talk to them and get an account of his life and his death and his resurrection. And that's how they could be sure. That was the evidence that Paul presented. It's the evidence for the gospel. It's the evidence for, for Christ saying who he says he is and for Paul saying who Christ is and testifying to these people. Well, we're a little bit too late to talk to those people today, aren't we? So as I was thinking about, okay, well, it was great for Paul to say that to the Corinthians and to say, well, if you don't believe me, go check it out. Go talk to those folks. What are we to do about that? What kind of evidence can I find today? Well, as I thought about it, how can I be sure that the gospel is true today? And these are just Dimitri's thoughts here, and I want you to think about them, and maybe you will disagree, maybe you will agree. But just as we read in Romans chapter 1, the reason God is punishing the unbelievers is because of the great display of nature out there, right? And we are looking around at it every day. Now, I know a lot of us, we wake up and we just walk around like this all day and we think about our problems and we think about our next job and, you know, our family and what we need to do and those things are all good. But I want to encourage you once in a while to look up at the stars. I rarely do that, but when I do, I'm amazed at the creation of God. And it is all written in here. God created that by the power of his word on day one. He did all of that. And it is still here for us to see. And it testifies to us every time that we look at the stars, every time that we look at the birds. I mean, even when I watch those shows when they say six billion years ago, I disregard that and I watch the show because I want to see how amazing God's creation is. And it truly is. God created some amazing things. And if it is not a testimony to us, then I don't know what could be, right? So nature, nature is one of the things that testifies to us every day. Yes, I'm negative 13 seconds now. <laughs> another thing, another thing that I recently just came, came aware of, there was, look him up, I mean, there's, just, there's this gentleman, his name is John Reeves, and I saw him 
And there's a documentary that has been made. It's called Boneyard Alaska. Now, these are some ungodly folks. They don't know what they got. But he has a little five-acre plot of land in Alaska. And brothers and sisters, he dug up more than 2,000 prehistoric animal bones from that little five-acre plot. Now, if that's not evidence to the flood, I don't know what it is. I mean, people are thinking, and they're sitting there, and they're talking about it. And I heard his interview, and he's sitting there, and they're just talking. And he's like, two hours into the interview, he says, Boy, I wonder what that could have been. Why are they all there at the same spot? All of these great mammoths and these prehistoric bears and the saber-toothed cyber, or I don't even know how to say them. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I want to scream through the TV and say, it's the flood. It's the flood, idiots. It is the flood. Wake up and see the evidence. But people will come up with all kinds of things. They will make all sorts of excuses except to believe the truth of what the gospel says. So talk about evidence, right? So nature, the flood. Think of the nation of Israel. The Bible speaks of it so much, right? The chosen people, the race that God brought up for his own glory. The endurance of the nation of Israel and the attempts of Satan to destroy the Jews should be evidence enough for us to understand that what this word is saying is true. And then as I thought about it more, think of the book itself, the Bible. Did you guys know that all of you own the best-selling book in the whole entire world, and you get a privilege of holding it in your hands every single day if you choose to? It is the best-selling book in the whole entire world. The Word of God, it perseveres, it does not end, it endures through all of the rulers, through all of the wars, through all of the disasters, through any kind of thing that has happened against it. The Word of God endures it is the evidence for us to see that it is true. And the last but not least, the church. The church of God. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome or overpower it. And here we are. Here we are in year 2023. In 2020, I know a lot of us thought maybe we wouldn't make it to 2023, but we're here because God said so. And guess what? Till the day that Christ returns and takes us home, the church will endure no matter what is built against it. And then verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Dear brothers and sisters, I just want to say this one thing. The gospel unifies the church. It gives us the purpose to exist. It gives us the purpose to preach what we preach, and it gives us the purpose to wait for the great day of resurrection. And it is all because, as Apostle Paul points out twice in the last 
verses here. We heard, we believed, we hold on to the gospel only because of God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, it is the word of truth to life. We praise you for not rejecting us, but revealing yourself to us in your wonderful word. Thank you so much for the gospel, Lord. Let us hear it. Let us share it. Let us walk and stand in it. And let us share it with our children. And the next generation may know that you are a great and an awesome God. May your name be praised forever, Lord. Amen.